Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg surveys the site of the freight train derailment and chemical spill and fire in East Palestine, Ohio, promising residents that federal help will continue and that the railroad will be held responsible. He also called on former President Donald Trump to support the Biden administration's efforts to reverse Trump-era freight rail regulation. And Secretary Buttigieg answering a reporter's question about whether he should have made the visit sooner. National Transportation Safety Board releasing a preliminary report on the rail disaster in East Palestine. It shows the crew received a critical warning about overheated axle bearings and did apply the brakes to stop the train when the car with toxic chemicals derailed and caught fire. President Biden nominates former MasterCard Incorporated Chief Executive Officer Ajay Banga to be the next president of the World Bank. We'll talk about that choice with Reuters Thompson White House and economics correspondent Andrea Shalal. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has a more upbeat view of the global economic outlook. She's attending a finance minister's meeting in India. And the Biden administration asked about whether it plans to release intelligence on its claims that China is considering sending lethal aid to Russia to use in its war in Ukraine. That invasion from Russia hits the anniversary mark on Friday. This from the Washington Post. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg pledged the Biden administration would never forget the people of East Palestine as he visited the site of the train derailment in Ohio that has left residents fearful of contaminated air and water. Secretary Buttigieg said his department is working to ensure such disasters don't continue to happen. His visit came a day after former President Donald Trump made a campaign stop in the small town near the Pennsylvania border and accused the Biden administration of abandoning it. That from the Washington Post. 38 rail cars derailed in that accident February 3rd, including 11 tank cars that carried toxic chemicals. After meeting with the residents and leaders of East Palestine, Ohio, and touring the train wreckage site where the cleanup of the chemicals continues, Secretary Buttigieg held a news conference. I also spoke today with the chair of the NTSB, Jennifer Hamidi. Uh, as you know, they have released their initial factual report. Their final work on this uh, will take a while to come out. Uh, but having these uh, factual findings is an important step toward being able to move on to the phase of policymaking. And while we will, of course, wait for their analysis and recommendations, at the end of the full process uh, to make certain judgments. We will not wait for that process to run its course to continue doing everything that we can to raise the bar on rail safety and to hold people accountable. And that's the other part of what my visit here is about, to make sure that we can assess how to drive the best safety improvements across our national transportation system. And to any national political figure who has decided to get involved in uh, the plight of East Palestine, uh, Palestine, excuse me, uh, I have a simple message, uh, which is I need your help, because if you're serious about this, there is more that we could do to prevent more communities from going through this. We've laid out a set of actions that DOT has taken, some of which were already underway, others which we're adding to the agenda a set of things that the railroad industry needs to do, including better informing communities when hazmat is coming to them, something I've talked to the governor about and strongly agree with him on, uh, and uh, including uh, steps to take care of, uh, of their workers and their system, and things that we need Congress in order to, to work on. And again, 
anyone in Congress who uh, cares about these issues, uh, they are welcome to come to the table and work with us to get things done. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg in East Palestine, Ohio, today at the cleanup site, the main area. NBC News article says that Secretary Buttigieg laid out a set of actions Tuesday that he said the administration, the rail industry, and Congress could take immediately to boost rail safety across the country, which includes allowing the Transportation Department to give out much stiffer penalties for rail safety regulation violations and reversing a delay to the rail industry's deadline to use more robust rail cars carrying hazardous materials. Secretary has also directed staff at the Federal Railroad Administration to speed up work on its final rule requiring at least two crew members on trains, a requirement long resisted by the rail industry and some members of Congress, according to the Transportation Department. That NBC News article also has this paragraph. Republicans have called on Secretary Buttigieg to resign after the train derailment, claiming he has been slow to react to the disaster. Secretary Buttigieg, however, tweeted last week that his department's ability to regulate the rail system is constrained by law because of a breaking rule withdrawn by the Trump administration. Secretary Buttigieg getting a question about the Republican criticism and specifically President Trump's visit from Wednesday. Well, one thing he could do is uh, uh, express support for reversing the deregulation uh, that uh, happened on his watch. I heard him say he had nothing to do with it, even though it was in his administration. Uh, So if he had nothing to do with it and uh, they did it in his administration against his will, uh, maybe he could come out and say that uh, that, uh, he supports us moving in a different direction. We're not afraid to own our policies when it comes to raising the bar on regulation. And uh, I've got to think that uh, uh, him indicating that this is uh, something that everybody, no matter how much you disagree on politics and presidential campaigns, can get behind. Higher fines, tougher uh, uh, regulations on safety, Congress untying our hands on breaking rules, all the other things that go with that. That'd be a nice thing for him to do. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, before his visit to East Palestine, Ohio today, he tweeted, happy to discuss timing of our Ohio visit, but starting to think some in Washington want that to be the main focus so that there aren't too many questions about rail safety regulation, who is for and who is against. We will hold the line on railroad safety and accountability. And a reporter asked him today whether he believes he should have been there earlier. You know, what I tried to do was balance two things. My desire to be involved and engaged and on the ground, which is uh, uh, how I am uh, generally wired to act, and my desire to follow the norm of transportation secretaries, allowing NTSB to really uh, lead the initial stages of the public-facing work. I'll do some thinking about uh, whether I got that balance right. Uh, but I think the most important thing is, first of all, making sure that the residents here have what they need. Uh, something that from our piece of the puzzle, DOT, we were working on from day one, and making sure we do something for the future. Uh, We we can talk about process, and that's that's, that's perfectly fair, but I don't want people pointing to process as a way to get away from the fundamental questions of rail safety regulation and accountability and whether we're going to make it tougher or whether we're going to allow it to continue being watered down. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg in East Palestine, Ohio. Congressman Dan Muser, Republican from Pennsylvania, asked today in a Newsmax TV interview about the secretary's visit. Too little too late, I think, tends to define this administration. This is a terrible disaster. The people there are afraid to shower. Farmers are afraid that people won't want to buy their, their, their produce. 
they show up for these uh, for assistance, and it takes five hours to get a response from Norfolk Southern because Pete Buttigieg and the Biden administration and FEMA and all isn't there. So, so they're, they're, they're slow, they're late, and they're indecisive. That's what sums up very much this Biden administration. There's no one in charge. Look, when you have an incompetent cabinet secretary, and I was in the governor's cabinet, I know what difference that, that, that can make. You have an incompetent cabinet secretary that checks all the boxes, and a, but, with, but with no experience at all, and a completely indecisive uh, president of the United States or CEO or at total absence of leadership, this is what happens. Add woke to it, add all their wokeness to it, shows that they're just completely out of touch. They don't even like rural America. Congressman Dan Muser, Republican from Pennsylvania, part of a Newsmax TV interview. National Transportation Safety Board releasing its preliminary report today on the train derailment and toxic chemical release in East Palestine, Ohio. The agency emphasizing the report does not contain a probable cause, only the facts known at this time. Some of those facts, the train was traveling at 47 miles per hour, just below the 50 mile per hour speed limit of the area, when a faulty axle overheated on car number 23 of the 149 car train, triggering three trackside detectors over a period of time, the last detector showing a temperature of 253 degrees above the ambient air temperature. That's above the 200-degree threshold considered critical by the railroad, and that triggered an audible alarm for the crew to stop the train. And the train did come to a stop. The crew then observed a fire, smoke, and notified dispatchers of a possible derailment. And the NTSB also saying car 23 on that train was carrying plastic pellets, which combined with the hot axle bearings, started a fire. The National Transportation Safety Board chair, Jennifer Hamidi, holding a news conference today at headquarters of NTSB in Washington, D.C., getting some questions about the details of the train derailment. Yes. Sheldon Ingram, WTA TV, Pittsburgh's Action News 4. Um, the fact that the crew didn't try to stop the train until it reached that critical stage, does that suggest a system-wide failure that they weren't alerted or didn't react sooner than when it reached 253 degrees? So the question is, uh, why did the crew re- not react at the, at the, after the first two wayside detectors where it was uh, identified 38 degrees above ambient temperature, which was 10 degrees at the time, and then 103 degrees? They did not react till 253. They, those two initial temperatures are designated by Norfolk Southern as non-critical. It, the information they receive is they don't have to do anything. So they were following procedures. Once they got the critical alarm of 253, they took immediate action. In your estimation, does that warning threshold have to change? We're going to look at, so the question is, does that warning threshold have to change? The warning threshold is set by railroads. And again, it varies by railroad. We're going to look at that and see if that threshold should have changed, should change. That's going to be one of our priorities in this investigation. Tom. Tom Costello with NBC News. Is there any suggestion yet what actually could cause the overheating? You said there's a list of possibilities, but is there any leading candidate what was causing this overheating with the bearings of potentially then the axle? 
The question is, what was what was causing uh, the overheating of the bearing and therefore the axle? It's a great question, and it's something we have to look at as part of this investigation. Right now, we've collected uh, information that we need on scene, the type of information that goes away when we release all the rail cars and when we release the scene. But that is exactly what we have to look at. I'll tell you one thing. We have one of our incredibly skilled investigators looking for other cameras along the route just to see if we could see other things. Uh, you know, there was that one video uh, that was uh, aired. We want to see if there are other ones. Because what we're getting from the defect detectors, we want to make sure, does that match up? So we're, we're digging into that. Jennifer Hammondy is the chair of the NTSB National Transportation Safety Board, part of a news conference today at their headquarters in Washington. She was also asked about the Biden administration's response to the derailment and chemical spill and fire in East Palestine, Ohio. To Alan. Hi, Alan Mazza from UNF mm-hmm. News. Former President Trump visited East Palestine and decried the Biden administration, your federal government response. What's your reaction to him saying that? and decrying the Biden administration, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg for not visiting too soon in his words. What do you say to the former president since he's not in government now and you're there? Yeah, so this is what I'm gonna say. Enough with the politics on this. Enough with the politics. I don't understand why this has gotten so political. This is a community that is suffering This is not about politics. This is about addressing their needs, their concerns. That's what this should be about. So I don't care about the politics. What I care about is caring for them. What I care about is figuring out how this happened. And what I care about and the NTSB cares about is getting to what would prevent this from reoccurring. Safety is the only thing we care about. Politics is left at the door. Politics is not part of our uh, investigative process. Our credibility rests on us carrying out an objective, thorough investigation, and that's what we'll do here. Thank you for the question. Sir. Jennifer Hammondy, National Transportation Safety Board Chair, part of her news conference today in Washington. And you can find the full news conference at our website, cspan.org, runs approximately an hour. At the White House, the Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre asked about why President Biden has not made the trip to East Palestine. Thanks, Karine. The mayor of East Palestine said that it was a slap in the face that the president had gone to Ukraine before he went to East Palestine. Does the president have any reaction to those comments? Look, um, I'll say this, and I kind of said this at the top already, which is, um, you know, I laid out what we have done since the derailment of February 3rd um, and how we were on the ground very early on. And um, and we believe uh, that we have had a all of government, all, all hands uh, uh, approach to this, not just with the agencies, but also with um, the different teams here in the White House. You think about the intergovernmental affairs, you think about Office of Ledge Affairs, uh, and also the National Security Council have been all hands on deck. And that is because of this president's leadership. And that is because of what 
what uh, he has asked uh, his team to do and what he has asked the agencies to do. So look, um, you know, we're going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, uh, as I've mentioned. Uh, there's uh, there's been investigating. They've been investigating what caused the derailment, monitoring for environmental and health impacts, and screening over 550 homes, as I mentioned. EPA has ordered the railroad company to clean up its mess and pay for all expenses. It, and if it doesn't, the EPA said that they will make the company pay three times uh, more. Uh, and Secretary Buttigieg has also written uh, to Norfolk Southern to make clear that the industry's pattern of resisting safety regulations must change. Uh, and he's calling on the industry and Congress to join the administration in implementing uh, that uh, uh, in implementing uh, that approach. So look, and as you all know, as I mentioned, Secretary Buttigieg is on the ground right now. He's getting an update. Uh, and uh, we've had, again, multiple agencies on the ground. The president has stayed updated on this for the past several weeks. While he was in Poland, he spoke to uh, the important folks on the ground, the leaders, the leadership on the ground, including uh, the, his leadership in those uh, in those uh, respective agencies, on what was going on and getting updates. And he will continue to do that and do everything that we can. Has the president spoken to the mayor of East Palestine? I don't have, Does he have any plans? I, I don't have a, a call to read out or a planned uh, conversation. I can tell you, as I've mentioned before, the president has spoken uh, to President, uh, prior to me, to Governor uh, DeWine of Ohio and Governor uh, Shapiro of Pennsylvania and has uh, has had regular contact. Our teams have had regular contact. And you've heard directly from uh, Governor DeWine about the, about uh, our um, our federal response and uh, how we've been working in lockstep with the local, local government on the ground. The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre at her briefing with reporters in the White House briefing room. The National Transportation Safety Board says that it's going to hold an investigative field hearing this spring in East Palestine, Ohio, about the derailment and hear from invited witnesses. NTSB chair calls a field hearing rare for her agency. This is Washington Today. President Biden nominating Ajay Banga to be the next president of the World Bank. He is the former MasterCard chief executive officer, now vice chair at General Atlantic, an equity firm. Anjay Baca would replace current President David Malpass, who was nominated by former President Donald Trump, and last week announced he plans to leave by the end of June, just about one year before the end of his term. Back to the White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre. President Biden announced that the United States is nominating... Ajay Banga to be president of the World Bank. As the president said himself, Ajay is uniquely equipped to lead the World Bank at, at this critical moment in history. He is a renowned business executive that has spent more than three decades building and managing successful global companies that have created jobs and brought investment to developing economies. As president and a CEO of MasterCard and as vice chairman of General Atlantic, Ajay has a proven track record creating public-private partnerships and mobilizing resources to address climate change. And raised in, 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 and raised in India, he is a unique, he has a unique perspective on the opportunities and challenges facing developing countries and how the World Bank can deliver on its ambitious agenda to reduce poverty and expand prosperity. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre with reporters in the White House briefing room. More on this now with Andrea Shalal, White House and economics correspondent with Thomson Reuters. Thanks so much for being with us. 
The World Bank says it will accept more nominations, but at the same time, you and other reporters are writing that Ajay Banga is just about guaranteed the job. Why is that? Well, the United States is the largest and the dominant shareholder of the World Bank. Um, There's also something called a gentleman's agreement that has been in existence since the institution was founded in 1946, uh, which basically holds that the, you know, World Bank leadership is generally and has historically always been held by an American citizen, by a U.S. citizen, whereas the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, is headed by a European. Uh, There's a lot of pushback on that, but that's the way it's been. And because of the shareholdings and the way the power is distributed, uh, that is unlikely to change. In this case, you could also say that the U.S. has chosen a very elegant solution by choosing someone who is a an Indian American who was born, raised, and worked in India for a long time before becoming a naturalized U.S. citizen. It answers a little bit of the call that people, that countries in the um, you know in developing countries and emerging markets have had about wanting a little bit more of a stake and a say in these institutions, it kind of, you know, answers that as well. Ajay Banga comes from the private sector, and some World Bank presidents in the past have been in banking, but the ones more recently have been in government positions. How might that affect how he approaches the presidency? It's a really interesting question. So some progressive groups have criticized President Biden for choosing someone whose career has been solely in the private sector. Um, But there are a lot of people out there, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and President Biden himself, who say that it is precisely um, Ajay Banga's experience in the private sector that will help to unlock the hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars that are needed to help developing countries cope with climate change and the other pressing challenges that they face. So David Malpass, the nominee, uh, the previous president of the World Bank, who was nominated by former President Trump, also had private sector experience, and he's done a lot of foot stomping to try to get the private sector more engaged, for instance, in debt relief issues but it really hasn't been successful. Bringing someone in like Ajay Banka, who um, headed MasterCard for 12 years and knows all of these players really well, personally, could help in that regard. Both in terms of trying to build these public-private partnerships, uh, much as he's done in the Partnership for Central America, where he worked closely with Vice President Harris but also perhaps in terms of breaking the logjam around uh, sovereign debt relief, where the private sector has been really reticent to get engaged. You mentioned David Malpass. I guess we should talk about why is he leaving? And with Ajay Banga coming in, will the agenda of the World Bank change? Yeah, so David Malpass was, as I said, nominated by former President Trump. Um, I think it was pretty clear that when his term ended, he wouldn't get a second term just by virtue of uh, the you know, um, 
political affiliation. He is a Republican. Um, but he got himself in deeper trouble uh, last fall when he declined to affiliate himself with climate science and sort of famously said, I don't know, I'm not a scientist. Um, so I think at that point there were calls for his resignation from civil society groups, the White House spokesperson, uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, condemned his phrase. Malpass later apologized, but I think it really sealed his fate that he wasn't going to get a second term. His term um, was due to end in April of 2024, so he's resigning with just over a year uh, left. He will cross the four-year mark um, in early April. The bank now expects to have completed its process and selected a new president by early May. We're talking with Andrea Shalal from Thomson Reuters. What does the World Bank do and how important a role does it play in the modern global economy? So the World Bank is one of the large international financial institutions. It is the largest uh, multilateral development bank. There are other banks that are regional in nature. It provides concessional financing, which means low-interest loans and sometimes grants to developing countries. Its mission is to eradicate extreme poverty and expand shared prosperity. But we've just gone through a global pandemic. Climate change is another massive global challenge. There are other challenges that are more global in nature. So when the institution was set up, it was built to work with an individual country at a time. But the world is way more complicated than that now. And so over the past few years, there's been building pressure for the bank to play a bigger role on the climate front. That was something that had started to happen under Malpass. And in fact, climate financing became a much bigger part of what the bank was doing. But that pace of change wasn't fast enough. So Treasury Secretary Yellen has been beating the drum for far more comprehensive reforms that would allow the bank to increase its lending to help developing countries combat climate change. And she has been frustrated um, and calling for the bank under Malpass's leadership to take bolder and more imaginative steps to free up the money that is, you know, desperately needed to address these global challenges. Andrea Shalal, White House and economics correspondent with Thomson Reuters. Find her stories at Reuters.com and on Twitter. She's at Andrea underscore Shalal. Thank you very much. Thank you. U.S. Commerce Department says the American economy grew at a 2.7 percent annual rate from October through December last quarter of 2022. Associated Press calls this a solid showing despite rising interest rates and elevated inflation. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen attending a meeting of finance ministers and central bank governors from the group of 20 major industrialized countries taking place in Bengaluru, India. 
saying that the global economy is better now than many predicted months ago. While there are significant headwinds, it's fair to say that the global economy is in a better place today than many predicted just a few months ago. In the fall, many were worried about a sharp economic slowdown across the world. The challenges we face are real, and the future is always uncertain. But the outlook has improved since we gathered in the fall. In its most recent estimates, the IMF forecasts global growth of 3.2% during 2023, which is a notable upgrade since its October report. In the United States, our economy remains resilient. Year-on-year headline inflation has moderated over the past few months as supply chain pressures have eased and global imbalances have subsided. And at the same time, our labor market remains strong. In January, the U.S. unemployment rate hit a low not seen in over half a century. The progress on our, on our global macroeconomy is a result of our collective work. And it underscores the importance of redoubling our efforts going forward. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in India, a news conference as she attends a meeting of the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors. Wall Street today, the Dow up 108, Nasdaq up 83, S&P up 21. Treasury Secretary Yellen also speaking about aid to Ukraine, fighting the war with Russia as the anniversary approaches. Just one more day. We'll have that when Washington Today continues in a moment. Listening to programs on C-SPAN through C-SPAN Radio just got easier. Tell your smart speaker, play C-SPAN Radio, and listen to Washington Journal daily at 7 a.m. Eastern. Important congressional hearings and other public affairs events throughout the day. And weekdays at 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern. Catch Washington Today for a fast-paced report on the stories of the day. Listen to C-SPAN anytime. Just tell your smart speaker, play C-SPAN Radio. C-SPAN, powered by cable. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and also on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. The White House says that President Biden will meet virtually on Friday with other G7 nation leaders and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to, quote, continue coordinating our efforts to support Ukraine and hold Russia accountable for its war. Friday is the anniversary of Russia's invasion. And today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen at the G7 finance ministers meeting in India talking about the aid the U.S. has already given and what is expected ahead. The United States and our allies are proud to support the Ukrainian people's fight for freedom. The United States has provided over $46 billion in security, economic, and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. Our military assistance includes key defensive weapons that Ukraine has asked for, such as the Patriot Missile Defense System. And our economic assistance is making Ukraine's resistance possible by supporting the home front, funding critical public services, and helping keep the government running. In the coming months, 
we expect to provide around $10 billion in additional economic support for Ukraine. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the leaders of the 27 European Union countries issuing a joint statement today ahead of Friday's anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That statement calls Ukraine part of our European family and says we will make sure that Ukraine prevails, that international law is respected, that peace in Ukraine's territorial integrity within its internationally recognized borders are restored, that Ukraine is rebuilt and that justice is done. Until that day, we will not rest. John Kirby is the Strategic Communications Coordinator at the White House National Security Council. He held a virtual news conference today, asked how long U.S. support can go on. I mean, realistically, how long can the U.S. sustain this level of support? Like if the war were to go on for another year, you know, what is, can you give us um, some insight into what that would look like? Well, you heard the president in, in Warsaw. He said it many times, for as long as it takes. Um, again, we hope that for as long as it takes means tomorrow, meaning that Mr. Putin does the right thing and pulls his troops out. Now, obviously, that doesn't appear to be in the offing anytime soon. Um, But when he says for as long as it takes, he means for as long as it takes. We do not take the support that we are getting from Congress and from the American people for granted that, 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 however. Uh, There has been terrific bipartisan support and bicameral support, quite frankly, Uh, even with now new House leadership in, in the Republican Party. If you listen to the leadership, They'll continue to say that they believe that we need that we need to continue to support Ukraine. Now, there's a small number of of, uh, of House Republicans who are vocal about uh, pushing back on this, but they don't represent their leadership. They don't rep- represent the bulk of the Republican Party, and they certainly don't represent the the bulk of Congress. So uh, we have had, and we expect to continue uh, bipartisan support. Again, we're not taking it for granted. That's why we're constantly briefing Congress, keeping them informed about what we're doing, what we're about to do before we send packages forward. Um, I've heard this narrative that there's you know no more blank checks for Ukraine, and that there never has been. Every single. Uh, amount of security assistance we provided has been done in full consultation and coordination with members of Congress. Um, There's been no blank checks and nor do we expect there to be. The last thing I'll say on this is that um, uh, thanks to uh, the work of the Congress in the last session, uh, we have now resources, funding that will allow us to get through this fiscal year uh, uh, more than $40 billion worth of assistance, much of it de- devoted to security assistance, but not all of it, some for humanitarian purposes and financial purposes. Um, and uh, and we're going to make sure that we spend that wisely and effectively um, in the weeks and months uh, ahead. Uh, but we have, we certainly have enough to get us through uh, much of, of this year. And again, hopefully we won't have to go back for more if, if this war would, you know, uh, could end. John Kirby is a spokesman for the White House National Security Council, taking part in a virtual news conference today, a White House staff member reading reporters' submitted questions. Russian President Vladimir Putin saying today in a speech to mark Defender of the Fatherland Day, which celebrates Russia's military, he will, quote, focus on strengthening the nuclear triad. That refers to nuclear weapons that can be launched from land, sea, and air. And he also said for the first time that Russia will deploy this year the Sarmat Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, which can carry multiple nuclear warheads. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken interviewed today by The Atlantic's editor-in-chief Jeffrey Goldberg asked about U.S. relations with Russia. It seems, to me at least, as if the United States and Russia are not merely in a Cold War reminiscent of the old Cold War, but, but it's... This period seems to be reminiscent of the of the 
most tense periods of the Cold War of the late 40s to the to 1990 or so. Uh, I, I mean, talk about the state of Russian U.S. relations historic. Put this in context historically yeah. for us. Well, Jeff, in a funny way, you're you're right. It may even be in one sense worse. For example, take the news this week that Russia is suspending participation in the New START agreement. It's the one remaining arms control agreement that's clearly to the benefit of both countries, but also uh, to the world. Uh, it's a profoundly irresponsible action and one that I think um, the world sees as yet another negative, deeply negative step. Um, and even during the Cold War, by the time we got around to forging these arms control agreements uh, with the Soviet Union, uh, we both abided by them, even at some of the worst moments. But having said that, this conflict with um, between uh, uh, many countries and Russia over Ukraine is not about ideology, as the Cold War was. It's it wasn't uh, communism versus the free world. It is about an imperialist power that is seeking to aggress another country and to aggress the principles at the heart of the UN Charter that are there to try to keep the peace around the world uh, and many countries standing up against that. Uh, so in that sense, I don't see it as a Cold War. I see it as um, a large part of the world united in uh, standing up against aggression and standing up aggression because it not only poses a threat to Ukraine and its people, but to uh, peace and security around the world to the extent that other would-be aggressors get the wrong message from what Russia's doing. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, part of a virtual interview today with The Atlantic. A Wall Street Journal article begins, the Biden administration is considering releasing intelligence it believes shows that China is weighing whether to supply weapons to support Russia's war in Ukraine, U.S. officials said. The discussions on public disclosure come ahead of Friday's United Nations Security Council meeting, marking one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. It follows a number of closed-door appeals to China coordinated among North Atlantic Treaty Organization allies that culminated in a formal warning delivered over the weekend in Munich to Wang Yi, China's senior foreign policy official, by a number of Western officials, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken and British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. That from the Wall Street Journal. Today at the State Department briefing with spokesperson Ned Price, he was asked if Secretary Blinken plans to discuss this intelligence when Secretary Blinken is at the U.N. Security Council on Friday. Will the Secretary use the U.N. platform tomorrow to share what you guys already know about China-Russia cooperation? I wouldn't expect him to, to go into any uh, detail on this front. He has had an opportunity in recent days to uh, speak to our concerns uh, about uh, what we've seen already between the PRC and Russia, or the concern we have that uh, the PRC could take additional steps that they've heretofore uh, declined uh, to take. He spoke to that uh, from Munich. He's spoken to that uh, when he's been asked about it in recent days, including earlier today. Uh, our message to the PRC has been uh, consistent. They uh, would decide to provide lethal assistance or to provide systematic assistance to Russia in its uh, sanctions evasion at uh, their own peril. It would come uh, with costs and consequences from the United States, from uh, the international community. We're watching this uh, very closely. We've had these conversations directly, candidly, frankly, uh, with the PRC, including when the secretary met with Wang Yi in Munich uh, just last weekend. Do you have a new uh, updated assessment on why 
China is doing what it is doing. I mean, quite honestly, quite honestly, they have been staying away from this for a year. Any, any, it seems up a little bit. You know. I, I, I would actually disagree with that, um, Alex. I don't think China has been staying away from this for the past year. In fact, uh, the PRC has been providing important support to Russia uh, over the course of this last year. They attempt to maintain this uh, veneer of neutrality, professing to the world that uh, they're not taking a side, but they've clearly chosen a side. In the weeks leading up to this invasion, when it was crystal clear, at least should have been crystal clear to the PRC, uh, what Russia intended, they signed uh, this uh, communique, 5,000 word communique that spoke of a partnership without limits uh, over the course of Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Uh, the PRC has provided diplomatic support, they've provided political support, they provided economic support. Uh, they have echoed and parroted uh, Russia's propaganda, its lies, its distortions, its mistruths uh, in an effort to shield Russia and to propagate uh, what it is trying to feed the world, a steady diet of disinformation and lies. State Department spokesperson Ned Price at the State Department today with reporters. C-SPAN radio and television will be broadcasting the United Nations Security Council meeting on Friday that will include Secretary Blinken on the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Live coverage beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern. China's deputy ambassador to the United Nations, Dai Bing, said a U.N. General Assembly debate today on a resolution urging Russia to leave Ukraine that brutal facts offer an ample proof that sending weapons will not bring peace. Also, this quote from the deputy ambassador, adding fuel to the fire will only exacerbate tensions, prolonging and expanding the conflict will only make ordinary people pay an even heftier price. This is Washington Today. Story from Politico, a three-judge federal appeals court panel wrestled Thursday with tangled questions about Congress's immunity from criminal inquiries and whether it might apply to efforts by Congressman Scott Perry to aid Donald Trump's bid to subvert the 2020 election. Two of the three D.C. Circuit judges hearing the case appeared highly skeptical of the Justice Department's narrow view of the Constitution's speech or debate protection for lawmakers. It was unclear whether that disagreement would translate into a ruling that denies investigators access to the contents of a cell phone they seized from the Republican congressman in August. Well, in light of this week's Supreme Court oral arguments on social media's liability, former January 6th committee investigator Megan Conroy talked today about the role social media played in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, an event that took place at Georgetown University Law Center. Um, ultimately, this is a question that social media researchers and academics have long tried to answer, and it's hard to do because naturally there's, you know, algorithms are proprietary. Um, you can obviously gauge some answers through experiments and, um, you know, online ethnographic research, etc. Um, but the algorithm question is a sticky one. And I think, and I know this is, uh, this is a very hot topic and I, and a contentious one, and I'm, I'm not, I think there are plenty of social, you know, people who, who work on social media and engage with the affordances of social media, which is not only inclusive of algorithms, but also the ways in which users can interact with one another on platforms and the way that they can interact with information on platforms, right? Like YouTube is basically a library of information. It's a search engine as much as it is a social media platform, whereas obviously like you're not conducting searches about information on Facebook, at least I hope you're not. And so each, each platform is obviously fundamentally different and therefore each 
algorithm is fundamentally different. So it's hard to kind of paint this argument with a broad brush, but I think something that we should be talking about, and I've made this case a few times, you know, since serving on the committee. Um, and again, this is the part where I'm not sure if people would agree with me, which is that I think there's a hyper-focus on algorithms. And this is not to say that they don't play a role in pushing people in a certain direction online or feeding them certain content. They absolutely do. But I, I think if platforms were better at moderating content, and this doesn't even necessarily mean stricter mo content moderation policies, this just means like actually upholding the ones that they already have. If they were better about that and had the money um, or invested the money in that, I and time and expertise, I think the the controversy surrounding the algorithm would be lessened because if, if there's no or less problematic content on a given platform, then the chances of an algorithm serving that content to a user is fundamentally lower. So I think content moderation is obviously harder. It's more nuanced. It's it's not as easy of a boogeyman as the algorithms. But I think that's probably where we should start is figuring out, you know, because if Silicon Valley could get rid of all of the algorithms tomorrow, and there would still be problematic content on virtually, every, no, literally every platform. So I think we need a little bit more nuance in the debate. And I think algorithms do not stand alone as the problem, not by a landslide. Megan Conroy was a House January 6th committee investigator on a panel today with other investigators from that committee. It was hosted by Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C. We covered it. You can find the video at cspan.org and also that Supreme Court case, actually two different cases regarding social media's liability for content, specifically terrorism-related content that's posted by users. We covered that as well, and you can find the oral argument at our website. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. You can subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night. C-SPAN's Washington Journal. Every day we're taking your calls live, on the air, on the news of the day, and we'll discuss policy issues that impact you. Coming up Friday morning, Adam Michel, Tax Policy Studies Director at the Cato Institute, and Amy Henauer, Executive Director at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. They talk about the revenue piece of the federal budget process, including how and how much the federal government collects in taxes. Then Natalia Bugayova, Russia Fellow at the Institute for the Study of War on the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Watch Washington Journal live at 7 Eastern Friday morning on C-SPAN or on C-SPAN Now, our free mobile app. Join the discussion with your phone calls, Facebook comments, text messages, and tweets. Next, four conversations from C-SPAN series of over 40 interviews with new members of the 118th Congress. C-SPAN spoke with the new members about their upbringings, careers, and political philosophies. Republican Wesley Hunt is one of the nearly 80 new House members in the 118th Congress and one of the few to represent a new congressional district, the 38th in Texas. He's a veteran and West Point grad who told C-SPAN about how his military service 
and his upbringing influenced his conservative politics. You know, I, I came from a very conservative home. Uh, my dad's a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army. My sister's a West Point grad. My brother's a West Point grad. I'm a West Point grad. Uh, there's about 60 years worth of military service just in my immediate family. And you really only get three West Pointers in one house. They have a pretty conservative home. And so it's a values-based background that I grew up in. Grew up in a Southern Baptist church in, uh, in the suburbs of Houston, Texas. And just that's just kind of what guided my life and what really kind of pushed me more toward the conservative side, more toward the re Republican side of, of, of uh, politics. How would you summarize your or your family's Republican philosophy? You know, we had a, a, a Jesus and a God first type mentality. Uh, my parents are strong believers. Uh, we went to church twice a week. So it basically stems just from the Bible. And, and those teachings of Jesus and, and what those conservative values mean, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, treat others with, with, with respect, uh, the golden rule, that, that's kind of the philosophy that guided it throughout my entire life. And my dad, being the colonel that he was, uh, he had a whiteboard in our house. And written on that whiteboard were, of course, all the chores, make your bed, do the dishes, clean your room, all that kind of stuff. But on top of that board said, Jesus plus education equals success. And so because of that, uh, three West Point graduates, we all had master's degrees. My sister got her master's degree in applied mathematics. My brother went to Harvard Business School. I earned three master's degrees and four years from Cornell. And we did all these things because that was just the way our parents raised us. Did you ever resist any of this? You could try, that wasn't happening. This wasn't an option. Yeah. Uh, we live in a democracy in this country, but my house was not a democracy. Uh, <laughs> and I thank God that it wasn't uh, because my parents kind of taught us that this is the greatest country in the world. You should always try your best to find ways to serve. And that's why there's 60 years of service in my family. That's the thing that I'm most proud of is the idea of being willing to sacrifice our lives and our livelihood for our fellow Americans and for the Constitution. Every generation, somebody must do that. And my dad and my mom instilled that in all of us. Describe your military career. Oh, yeah. So um, out of high school, went to West Point, uh, class of 2004. One fun fact about my class is there are three of us actually now serving in the halls of Congress as freshmen. Uh, me, John James, Pat Ryan, all from the same class. I think that might be a record of a sort. Uh, but after my time at West Point, I uh, went to Fort Rucker, Alabama, learned how to fly the Apache helicopter, um, deployed to Iraq right after that, 55 combat air missions in Baghdad, also did two tours of duty in Saudi Arabia as a diplomatic liaison officer. And it was those formative years that really taught me the importance of how good we have it in this country. On our worst day, this place is as good as it gets. What, when you see your, your former West Point classmates yeah. in the halls of Congress, yeah. is there something that you say to each other or greet, how do you of greet course. each other? What of do you, course. What, what is it? Beat Navy. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the thing. You know, for us to be able to think back to those days now coming up on our, on our 20 year reunion, which is just unbelievable. To know that we shared that time at West Point and also to know that we all deployed together. In fact, John James's unit 
was the Apache unit that replaced us in Baghdad back in 2006. So to have that camaraderie, to understand that we are the ones that are willing to die for this country because we deployed forward together, it just means a lot. And even though two of us are Republicans and one's a Democrat, I can tell you that I, we could find ways to work together because we are meeting at a place of mutual respect. And I think we need more of that in Congress. How are you applying your military career to how you run your office or how you conduct yourself as a member of Congress? Every day, my team gets up and we figure out how can we make a difference every single day. Same thing whenever we're deployed forward. As, as a platoon leader, as a commander, you wake up in the morning, you say, what can we do to win the battle for today? And how can we continue to save the lives of our fellow comrades? It's that same mentality that I think we take as a team. And I got a few military guys on my team, very young, vibrant, smart, just, just forward-thinking young people that work for us that I think embody that, that warrior ethos of what are we going to do today to make a difference and to win the battle so ultimately we win the war. Your name made headlines at the beginning of this Congress yeah. and your wife as well. <laughs> you missed the 12th and 13th round of voting for Speaker of yeah. the House. For yeah. those that think your name sounds familiar, explain what happened. So um, I have a now three week old little boy. He was born a few weeks early. So he was in a NICU for, for a couple of weeks. And I flew home after the 11th and 12th vote uh, because I just kind of wanted to, wanted to be with him. I had not seen him in my home yet. Uh, and then also my wife had a bit of a small medical, medical issue as well. So she had to be re readmitted briefly. And so flew home for that. And then that was about the time where uh, Leader McCarthy got about a 14 vote pickup at that noon vote. And we were watching with my family and my wife and she's a trooper. And she looked at me and she goes, you know, it's looking like y you may have to fly back tonight if necessary. And then shortly after that, I got a few text messages. Uh, so hopped on a plane that, that evening flew back, was able to make that vote, and I was back in Houston 6 a.m. on Saturday morning <laughs> because my wife was like, you can go, but you better get back as soon as possible. Yep. What was interesting about that is the motto at West Point is duty, honor, country. Duty. It's my duty. It's my job. 800,000 people that live in my district elected me to do my job. And I know family, family is the most important thing to me. My little girl is my little boy, and my wife are the most important thing to me but also I have a job to do, and it was an absolute honor to be able to come back and cast that vote. How is the family doing? They are doing fantastic. Everybody is home. Uh, thank God for mother-in-laws. <laughs> so, so my wife is originally from Iowa. Her mother-in-law flew down from Iowa for the next two weeks. We have a very busy two weeks coming up here, so uh, she's, she's there now, and everyone is doing perfectly well, thank God. I think that my little boy was the most prayed-after little boy for 48 hours in America. So I really attest a lot of that to how well he's doing right now. Democrat Glenn Ivey represents Maryland's fourth congressional district, one that borders the nation's capital. He's also one of the nearly 80 new members of the U.S. House in the 118th Congress. A former state's attorney and public service commissioner, he told C-SPAN about why he was already familiar with working on Capitol Hill before winning his 2022 election. Well, I first came to Capitol Hill in 1987. I went to work for uh, Congressman John Conyers, who was one of the co-founders of the Congressional Black Caucus. And at that time, he was a subcommittee chair on the House Judiciary Committee. And I think he uh, around then became a committee chair for, a, it was called government operations at the time. 
Uh, so I started then, left the Hill for a while, went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., came back to the Senate to do the Whitewater hearings that were starting up. And I was on the Banking Committee staff there for two years. Then uh, I went to the Leader's Office, who was Tom Daschle at the time, for the Thompson-Glenn hearings and uh, did some other substantive work there as well. Reminder viewers of the Whitewater investigation. Whitewater started out as an issue about uh, the Clintons and whether they'd gotten uh, an illegal loan, essentially, uh, from a, a, an SNL bank that existed in Arkansas. Uh, it became pretty clear uh, relatively quickly that that wasn't the case. So uh, the Republicans won control of the Senate. Uh, it was 1994, Gingrich and that tsunami. They won the House and the Senate. The Senate Banking Committee became the Senate Whitewater Committee. And it was kind of off to the races from their perspective after that. So they did two years of, of additional hearings. Um, and then um, two years after that, Lincoln Bedroom, all kinds of other things. But at the end of the day, it ended up not resulting in much. You've spent a lot of time up here then. As now a member of Congress, have you learned anything new or different? Maybe something that has surprised you? Well, the people are very different. I mean, the tenor of, of the Hill is, is uh, it's, uh, much more divided. It's, it's much more, um, in some ways, venomous. Um, and, you know, there are members that are here in the Congress, I won't be specific, but who really espouse, um, I think, borderline kind of nutty things. So it's a, it's a very different place than it was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Who or what made you decide to run for this seat? Well, I'd been looking at this for a while. I'd worked on the Hill, as I mentioned, and enjoyed being on Capitol Hill. I'd been elected as a, it's called state's attorney in Prince George's County. It's like the DA job and done that for two terms. Uh, but I enjoyed politics. I enjoyed public service. This position came open and I decided to run. Do you have any political mentors? I'm sorry? Political mentors? Oh yeah, I was very, very fortunate on that front. Um, Certainly, uh, Senator Paul Sarbanes, who hired me at the beginning of the, uh, the Whitewater hearings, um, that was, was one of the best for me. Eric Holder was one of my bosses at the U.S. Attorney's Office. He's been a continuing mentor for me uh, over the decades now, so I've, I've really been blessed on that front. What have they taught you, or is there any adage that they would say that stays with you today? I mean, you know, Holder came in and ran the U.S. Attorney's Office, which had about 300 lawyers. And I used a lot of his techniques for dealing with people, for organizing staff, for motivating staff um, after I left there. And I, I took on jobs where I was running uh, fairly large offices like the state's attorney's office. Senator Sarbanes um, was probably the, the smartest man I ever met. Um, he was a brilliant guy. And he brought a, a, a very strong work ethic to, uh, to his job as a United States senator. What are you looking forward to working on here in, the, in Congress? Well, the last Congress was very productive from a legislative standpoint. I don't know that that's going to continue on because, um, you know, the Republicans in the House don't appear to, to have a real strong focus on legislation. Their, their focus appears to be on uh, investigations, especially targeting the Biden administration. Um, so I think we'll be doing a lot of that. I've been assigned to committees like Judiciary and Homeland Security, where I think there's going to be uh, an inundation of, of investigations. Uh, and I think the other piece that we, we really are looking to do 
with my office is to make sure that the, the benefits of the legislation that was passed in the last Congress actually gets out to the people who need to benefit from it. So there are billions of dollars that are coming through for you know, expanding the internet, uh, you know, and a variety of types of projects, infrastructure and the like. We want to make sure that uh, that money gets to where it needs to go so people can benefit from that. Uh, and also, I think there's, there's legislation where there's not going to be those types of financial benefits necessarily, but they, it's going to help folks. Like, you know, negotiating uh, prescription drug costs, for example. So we want to make sure that the legislation that was passed gets put into place and implemented uh, in a way that's, that's very efficient and effective. Republican Monica De La Cruz gave up her longtime insurance agency business to become one of the nearly 80 new House members in the 118th Congress. She told C-SPAN about her district along the southern border, her family's conservative roots, and about being the first Republican to ever represent the 15th Congressional District in Texas. It's so exciting because not only am I the first Republican to represent District 15, but I'm also the first woman to represent District 15 in over 100 years. And what an honor it is. What does that mean to you? Well, it means so much to me that my community chose me to lead them and be the voice in Washington, D.C. for them. And what I ultimately hope to be is a role model to all children out there, boys and girls, to let them know in this great country anything is possible. With hard work and with faith, anything can be done in this great country. Why or what sparked you decide to, to run for office, for public office? So what motivated me to run for this office is I saw in 2019 how our Border Patrol agents, our customs agents, were being treated by the Democratic Party and how they were often painted as the villain in the story. Being in a district, in a community that has a large border patrol sector in our country, a large present, we see the hard work and sacrifice of these brave men and women, their sacrifice and love for this country, where they're putting their lives on the line each day for all Americans. In fact, just last month, we had one of our border patrol agents, uh, Agent Raul H. Gonzalez Jr., actually die in the line of duty. He died for our country and I didn't like the way they were being treated. So I said, I'm going to stand up and be their voice. And boy, did I stand up in a big way. For people who aren't familiar, where is your district? Our district begins on the south end in McAllen and Edinburgh, Texas. And that is on the border of the Rio Grande River in Hidalgo County, and then it shoots straight up to the area in between San Antonio and Austin, ending on the north end in Guadalupe County. Did you always think you would run for office? Never in a million years did I believe that I was going to be in this position. In fact, uh, to the surprise of many people, I had not even run for PTA. So to go from a small business owner, a football and volleyball mom on the weekends, to being a congresswoman for this district was uh, just such an honor, and I'm humbled to serve in this position now. What was your business? 
I was a I was the owner of a small business in insurance and financial services. In fact, I've owned an agency and been in the industry for over 20 years. And um, sadly, I did have to give up that agency that I had built from the ground up in order to serve my country and my community. Where do your conservative roots come from? So my conservative roots come from my mother. She was a single mom and my grandfather who served honorably this country in the Navy. My brother served 20 years in the United States Air Force. So we have a family that is rooted in love of country and that's on my mom's side. On my father's side, my grandfather was a Mexican farm worker who picked melons and to see how great this country is where you can go from such simple beginnings to being a leader in this great country I hope inspires all uh, men and women and young children to believe that the American dream is still alive and well how old are your kids my kids are 15 and 16. And what do they think about their mom as a member of Congress? Oh, well, they are certainly proud of their mom. And I can tell you though, what's great about having kids, especially teenage kids, is they're ready to humble you very quickly. Because the first words when I come home are not how did things go in DC, but when are you gonna make us XYZ meal? So they're always ready for a home cooked meal. Democrat Jasmine Crockett represents the 30th Congressional District in Texas, and she's one of nearly 80 new members of the 118th Congress. She told C-SPAN about an experience with racism in college that drew her into a career in law and public service, and about her professional life before running for office. Um, so I'm a practicing lawyer. So I've been licensed to practice in the states of Texas, Arkansas, and federal courts for the last 16 years. Um, and I know when most people think about lawyers, they think, is this the person that sits at the desk or do you go into the courtroom? And in short, I was a courtroom lawyer. Um, civil rights work. So for those that have been watching as the big police brutality cases have happened, I have usually represented the family members of someone who maybe was killed. Um, I've also represented uh, anyone all the way up to capital murderers or accused capital murderers, because I do have uh, a few people that did not get convicted. Um, in addition to doing what we call personal injury work. So basically, if somebody's in a car accident and they need to sue the insurance company, I'm the girl that goes to court, sues the insurance company. And you did that for how many years? So licensed and practicing for 16 years. And what did that teach you about yourself and prepare you for coming to Congress? So interestingly enough, it's the law that actually drove me to want to write legislation. Um, I was the girl that would walk in and say, this doesn't make sense. How can I fix this? And living in a state as large as Texas with 30 million people, 254 counties, um, you know, you think about it and you're saying, I'm walking into one courtroom with one case. I need to fix this for the collective. Um, and so that is what drove me to run for the state legislature um, where I served as a freshman and then I ran for Congress. Um, but it was my experiences, the real life experiences I just didn't really feel like lawmakers understood how these laws were affecting everyday people. And I wanted to go in and basically let them know, this is what happens when you do this. Um, and I, I thought it would be valued uh, in the Texas House. Uh, we, 
you know, uh, not necessarily uh, is how I'll put that. Um, and there's a former ambassador who talked to me when there came an opportunity to run for Congress. And he says, listen, you stay in Texas and you really won't get very much done. Not what you want to get done for your constituency. Um, you will be in a deeply red situation, a red house, a red Senate, and a red governor's mansion. But you have opportunities on the federal level. Even if you go into the minority, we know that things actually change on the federal level. And that's where you can really be a champion for your community. And I thought about that, and he, he was right. Um, and so I decided that this really was a good opportunity. Was there something or someone in your early years, maybe as a child, that triggered that interest in civil rights? Honestly, no. Um, so my parents weren't the marching type of folk at all. Um, it was my real lived experiences, some of the scary things that I've seen and some of the conversations that I've had to have with um, some mothers um, that really made me say, I need to do this. Um, the very first time that I even, I guess, thought about it was I was uh, in college. I attended college in Memphis, Tennessee at Rhodes College, the same school that uh, one of our justices uh, attended. And I was the victim of a series of hate crimes. Um, and so it was, it was the first time in my life that I had ever experienced racism. Um, so I definitely understand those that think that racism doesn't exist because if it's not a part of your reality, it's easy to say that it doesn't exist. And so here it was, I had gone to um, a number of schools where I was in a significant minority. I never really felt that way. Um, I just had my friends. We weren't you know, caught up on color, so to speak. And when I got to college in Memphis of all places, I never really thought about racism there either. And there was some idiot uh, we never figured out or a series of idiots, not sure. Never figured out who the culprits were, but they started keying our vehicles with the N-word. Um, they put together what looked like Jack the Ripper letters and put them into our on-campus mailboxes. And uh, there was a lawyer from the Cochran firm that was brought in by the school to investigate. And it was the first time that I said, man, you know, who helps people when they feel this way? And while we never got to the bottom of who did what, it was the comfort level that I got to see her and to know that she was there to be my champion. Um, and I think that, that that definitely initially piqued my interest. But by the time I got to law school and they told me I could actually make money, I thought, oh, great, you know, I, for, I forgot. Um, but through a series of experiences and growing and maturing, I did some soul searching and said, why did you ever want to be a lawyer? And it took me back to that moment, that moment of how I felt to be so vulnerable and helpless um, and to be discriminated against simply because of the way that I was born that made me say, I need to get back to my roots of why I ever wanted to get into this work. And it sounds like that's why you're here today. Absolutely, same thing. It's just a matter of how can I make this world a better place for those coming behind me? Um, I look at it and say, you know, I'm only here because there were people that were willing to risk their lives for an opportunity that the Voting Rights Act be passed, the initial five-page Voting Rights Act that was signed into law by a Texan, Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, Texas has a rich history of doing decent stuff. 
um, when we look back, it's unfortunate that so many of the monumental things that we have stood on in this country actually were born out of Texas. And unfortunately, it's Texas that is trying to take us back to um, a time before then, even Roe v. Wade. Henry Wade was the district attorney in Dallas County. The, the criminal uh, district attorney's office sits in my current district. Um, Sarah Weddington argued that case successfully as a classmate of my predecessor, Eddie Bernice Johnson. They were sworn in to the Texas House 50 years ago. And on that House floor, this young woman who was still in her 20s, only a month into her service into the Texas legislature, gets a call from the Supreme Court. And so Texas is why women have reproductive rights in the first place. Texas is why African-Americans and other minorities um, have been saved from some of the Jim Crow relics that existed as relates to voting. Yet Texas is also the same state that led the charge in making sure that they were going to spread what I consider to be a cancer throughout this country um, when it came to rolling back women's rights on reproductive health, when it came to rolling back access to the ballot box. And so I think that it's time for Texas to rise up um, and for people to see who the real Texas is. And I believe that I represent who we really are as Texans. Did your predecessor give you any advice? Oh my gosh, tons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? The, the one thing that she said, uh, because she did call me and ask me to run for the seat, was that she wanted somebody experienced. And uh, there's over a 40 year gap difference in our age. And people kept saying, she's a little different from you. And I'm thinking, you know, there's a, gen a few generations um, difference. But the one thing that she said was, always keep the people first. Focus on the people. And that's just who I am. She wanted someone who had experience, but she also wanted someone who had a heart for the people. Um, and so those are really the two things that make up who I am as a lawmaker. Those are the things that I'll continue to carry with me. And if for some reason this job becomes um, something different from that and starts to turn my heart, that's when I know that it's time for me to go. Let's end on a lighter note. Some of your colleagues have said you have a profession <laughs> elsewhere. And it's not true. And that's singing. <laughs> so if you don't mind. Oh, no, 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 no. Favorite song. Oh, OK. Um, favorite song. And just so maybe sing a little bit oh, from it. Oh, no, no, no. We're not going to do that part. But uh, I, I don't know if I have a favorite song. but. You know, I'm a Texan, so I always got to support Beyonce. Um, and, and one of her songs has been a theme for a number of my campaigns, and even right now, um, and that's Lemonade. And so I tell them, we may have been given a, a few lemons, but we are going to make this a lemonade session. We're going to add some sugar to this as Democrats, and we're going to turn this thing around. Um, but I am the child of a preacher, and so I have always sang in the gospel choir. You're just required to when your daddy preaches. Um, so, you know, I know how to blend in with other people. That's what I know how to do. <laughs> you can find all our interviews with new members of Congress at c-span.org slash congress hyphen new hyphen members.